0: Welcome to the Social Enterprise Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Rupert Schofield, host of the Social Enterprise Podcast and president and CEO of Fink International. Thank you for joining this episode of the podcast. Today, I'm hosting Galen Welsh, who is the co-founder of Jiboo the water company. Galen, welcome to the podcast. Let's begin with you introducing yourself to our listeners.
0: Yeah, I'm Galen Welsh. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Jibu, and I'm calling in from Kampala, Uganda.
1: Okay, fantastic. Listen, Galen, um, I think a way we uh, maybe would like to start, I think this would be interesting to our audience um can you kind of describe to us your journey so far as a social entrepreneur where did this idea come from where where did your what was the genesis of your interest in water and in uganda i know i just note for our audience you are uh like myself, you are a former Peace Corps volunteer, so it'd be interesting to know where you served, if it was in Africa, if it was in Uganda or somewhere, and if that had anything to do with you um, getting on this journey where uh, supplying uh, clean drinking water to people in uh, emerging markets. But why don't don't you just, uh, you know, take it from there and let us know the genesis of the idea and your interest and and how you wound up where you are today
0: thanks a lot rupert and the story does start with the peace corps so i did the peace corps in morocco and i you know as another rpcv i'm sure you know there's a pretty big Different country to country as far as the Peace Corps programs, and uh, one of the unique things about the Morocco program was that there was very little funding available for volunteers um, from from the Peace Corps. So most volunteers had to go and raise their own resources to fund projects um, in the communities, and um, you know that was really what brought me face to face with a lot of the traditional development approaches, um, and I found that you know to raise funds for projects that my community really cared about was much more difficult than raising funds for projects that maybe um, you know the donor community cared about, which was just kind of misaligned with 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 the community that I was working in. So I. I came away from that experience thinking there has to be a way to localize the wealth to the communities that need the help or that have really, you know, not been given opportunities to thrive themselves. So I, when I finished the Peace Bar, I was planning on moving to DC and working for TechnoServe because it felt like a good sort of segue into more of a market based approach or solution um, for these types of issues and I stopped by to see my parents in Colorado on the way. And my father who's a tech entrepreneur had um, exited his tech business about six months prior, and he was looking for a way to meaningfully uh, invest his his experiences and skill sets in making a bigger impact so. When we started talking, um, it came clear it was sort of a convergence of career, I mean career timing and and passion, uh, where he wanted to use all of his business experience to make an impact, and I wanted to figure out how to make an impact using business. So essentially my my father, who's the co-founder, ended up being our first investor. Um, and I really sort of had an apprenticeship with him learning the ropes as we developed the Jibu business model together. And You you notice like so far, I haven't even mentioned water yet in the story. And that's because our founding passion and interest was very much about how can we create an entrepreneurship engine and entrepreneurial opportunity to localize business ownership um, in the communities we serve. And so that was our driving motivation. And secondarily, we came to water because it's a basic necessity that's needed uh, basically across emerging markets. And we felt like it was something that we could scale and have a global impact across many countries um, around the world. So water is sort of our our rocket ship, the engine, the platform we're using to create sustainable business uh, for the entrepreneurs in the Jibu system. So so we, just to finish up the the early stages, um, we decided to launch in, in Congo, Uganda and Rwanda with three pilots. Uh, and to use a franchise model um, in those pilots so that we could sort of give the tracks to run in um, for entrepreneurs, but then also um, create real local ownership. And um, in that process, we, you know, we, anyway, I'll, I can share more later on in the podcast about some of the lessons learned there and how it, how it led to the model we have today, um, but uh, essentially, you can say the the founding motivation, maybe overeager motivation, we found out later, was um, how do we how do we drive local ownership um, and 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 create a business model that serves a basic necessity in an affordable way, but also also creates um, entrepreneur opportunity for, for entrepreneurs who otherwise didn't have that type of opportunity.
1: That's neat. That's an interesting story, you know. And I um, I, <laughs> I just. I was just going through some of my uh junk we've been unpacking because we moved up here upstate New York from Bethesda, Maryland, the DC area. And I found in one of my old Travel bags, a a bunch of Cipro pills. And I don't know if you had the similar experience that I did as a Peace Corps volunteer. I had a real problem with clean water. And I actually ended up in the hospital at the end of my two year term with serious intestinal parasites and amoebas and everything. And so uh, I. you know, I definitely can relate to uh, the importance of water. And actually, I, I interviewed another person on this podcast. Sadly, I cannot remember either his name or his company because I've done now, I'm going on about 45 of these podcasts <laughs> since I started that particular part of my journey. And, uh, but he's an Italian guy, and he went to Paris get this to study investment <laughs> banking. But as one of his electives, he took a course in water, and he became so passionate about figuring out a solution to the problem of clean drinking water in emerging markets, that he turned that into his new career to the great trepidation and <laughs> fears of his parents. But it seems to have worked out for him really well. But um, I think it's, uh, there's no question uh, you know, that it is an enormous need in, uh, in the markets where we work and um, <clears throat> I don't know if you've got a celebrity uh, representative like water.org has uh, Matt Damon. <laughs> Have you got one of those? We had Natalie Portman in the early days. She was huge, huge, hugely helpful to uh, helping us promote our cause. Have you got anyone at that uh out of that celebrity world that has been uh, we, helping you out
0: we don't but if you want to share natalie portman's number i'd be happy <laughs> <laughs> well you know what she won't talk
1: to me anymore she keeps sending me to her handlers i don't know what i did to offend her or whatever but no seriously it was just you know one of these things like you kind of get to a point with that world where uh, it takes up a ton of your time if you're going to keep those relationships alive, and you sort of have to think, hmm, do I want to focus on my mission in the field and the work and everything, or am I going to uh, spend a lot of time, you know, hobnobbing with the folks in Hollywood, which was is a ton of fun in itself, but it's hard to hard to devote real time to it. But but anyway. <laughs> We can talk about that another time, maybe over some beers or something. But um, so, tell me a bit, if you would, Galen, about the technology side of your business and how do you purify water that you kind of find in its its natural state, or how what what's the process you use to get to the actual product
0: yeah thanks thanks Richard. so we have to customize the water technology to the source and so let me just back up a little bit and describe the jubu business model so what we do is launch drinking water franchises um, and we finance and train entrepreneurs to uh, run these businesses whereby we've set up a production facility in a high visibility retail point in dense urban areas. Um, and so on site, the franchise owners uh, filter the water primarily using ultra filtration or a customized reverse osmosis system. And then they package it in reusable bottles, typically 20 meter um, reusable bottles, and then distribute to about a one kilometer area right around them. So they have. Customers walking in um, and exchanging their empties for a refill um, on site at the retail shop, uh, or uh, it's being delivered to the door or picked up through one of the distributors. Um, so when I say customizing the technology to the source, um, we have boreholes, surface, and municipal water sources that we're treating uh, at different franchise locations. And the the ideal technology that we prefer to use, if we can, is an ultrafiltration-based system. Um, that uses much less energy; it wastes much less water; it retains the natural minerals in the water, but removes the biological contaminants. Um, but there's there's many sites where we can't use ultrafiltration because the level of total dissolved solids in the water is too high. So salt or you know, fluorides, um, we it requires more than Uh, ultra filtration to remove some of those chemical impurities and and that's where we have an adapted RO system that runs parallel uh, basic filtration process side by side with the reverse osmosis process and and basically um, by running things in parallel we're able to retain some of the natural minerals and reintroduce them into the final product Um, and then in the RO system we have multiple membrane Membrane so that we have higher recovery or another way to say a lower water wastage than than a typical RO system. Um, but again, if we have you know an opportunity to use UF or ultrafiltration, we always do that just because it's 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 uh, energy efficient and and always sort of better than even the adaptive RO system.
1: Terrific. Okay. Um, well, tell me a bit about the uh local ownership, which I personally subscribe to myself i've I've always felt that unless you're involving the people with the problem in its solution then you're you're gonna have a real problem getting the right answer to that problem and getting the kind of uh, involvement that you need from the local communities in in its solution what what kind of um, what kind of experience have you had with that have because i there are also of course problems to that approach sometimes you are working in a culture where there's already a pretty rigid hierarchy of governorship and leadership and that, you know, you can't as an outsider kind of come in and mess with that too much because, you know, you get a lot of resistance. But what, what has been your experience? Maybe give me just a few anecdote, anecdotes maybe from your learning experience starting out in Morocco and now in Uganda and Rwanda and some of the other markets you work in.
0: Yeah, Well, it is our driving passion, like I said, and it's not only our business model, but it's also how we operate as a team, where we have sort of a high level of autonomy uh, between all of our different uh, operating companies, Um, and then even the employees within those operating companies. um, Literally every employee in the company does have ownership in the the main entity. Um, And so it's, it's, It's so important, actually, that our all of our KPIs that we measure track up into what we call our North Star metric, which is the number of thriving franchisees and um, we define thriving by, you know, the growth rate they have, the amount of liters of water that they're distributing. um, And then obviously the number is how many we've launched. And so everything we're doing as an enterprise is actually uh, about growing that number of successful local business owners. And now we've defined the business model so that it's not just, you know, they can't just be selling any old thing um, they're selling within the constraints of a franchise agreement, which means it's, it's affordable drinking water. Uh, but, but ultimately, like you said, I think the impact that we have from the business model itself far outweighs any product impact that could be had a single product can have you know a decent impact on your life, but it what what really transforms life is you know the the ability to uh you know to generate meaningful income, to have a meaningful job, to have meaningful work, all those things are transformative and they create opportunity for access to all sorts of life improving products. Um, and so so very much at the heart of what we do is is local ownership. And um, as far as anecdotes, um I, I do want to share sort of I alluded to this in the beginning, our over ambitiousness about this um, that made us uh, irrational when we were first starting to the point that we almost had to close the business down. Um, we, we were very anxious to create local ownership and so when we did our first three pilots, we, we get, we we just launched um, with full local ownership and prov- provided the financing and local ownership of the franchises to partners. and we found that um, you know basically well in all three cases all three franchises failed and that's because we hadn't yet built something worth selling to the franchise owners. We hadn't yet built a working model and um, and then we had forfeited all ability, to prototype or have any sort of control to test and prototype and build the model against what the vision was in the first place. So we ended up after all three failed, we bought the business back from our Rwanda, um, original Rwanda business owner and brought in a new owner on a vesting schedule. So based on certain criteria, um, the manager uh, vested ownership over a year to become the full owner again and it was only after we had that sort of one year period of redoing everything and establishing profitable unit economics that we're able to go back to to start scaling. Um, and so that time period, that, that time after the first three pilots failed and we had 12 months with one single franchise owner who was you know, part owner and part part staff, that's where the whole Jibu business model came out of. We, we were able to co-develop you know, the products, the pricing structure, the distribution model, all of that was co-developed hand in hand with our local partner. And and so I I think, you know, I was, I think we were so eager to create local ownership that we were actually too dismissive of the power of intellectual trade and showing that okay, we also had value to bring with the business model and idea we were coming with. And it's really that. That co-development, that true eye to eye partnership that has allowed you know, us to continue to grow, to grow Jibu. Um, so it's not about just sort of a kumbaya sort of a, you know, just just localize ownership all around, because then in the end, there'll be a lot of things missing. It's really that trade between eye to eye partners that creates, you know, that created, at least in Jibu's case the model that we've been able to run with and scale with.
1: yeah well as as you're uh, relating that story, Galen, I'm hearkening back to early days of Finca where we were we were uh, we were managing a ton of donor money in the beginning and I think we made a similar mistake like we, we underestimated the power of that free money, so to speak, to corrupt. And and if if our partners at the local level were not really carrying their weight and and contributing on the financial side, also, then um, it really did create an imbalance and we actually, uh, we had a similar experience. We lost some programs that were uh, we lost control and ownership over those programs to the local people we were working with. And we were responsible to these donors for the results of the program and the internal controls and the audits and everything so we we had some pretty difficult experiences which i prefer not to go into again because they were pretty faint painful but as in your case it's, that's the, sometimes there's only one way to learn things and that's by <laughs> screwing them up the first time and then figuring out okay and and we ultimately instituted what we call the new paradigm where we created a board of directors which we uh, had control over and that um, you know it was kind of like a risk management approach and everything but it sounds like you kind of came up in the in the same way. And just if I can uh, back up a bit, how many countries are you in now other than uh, Uganda?
0: Um, Yeah, we're in seven countries now. And we have eight uh, separate operations um, with two of them in DR Congo. So we have uh, okay, so we're franchising at multiple levels, we franchise at the single unit level where franchise by franchise, we're installing production units and growing that uh, network neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, And so in in Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda and DR Congo North, we have wholly owned subsidiaries where we're operating as a franchisor and and growing that network and supporting that network. And then we have a master franchise model where we partner with seasoned business people in new regions or, or countries and they become the franchisor and they basically uh, buy a jibu license to replicate what we're doing and grow the franchise network themselves and support it so jibu tanzania burundi uh, dear congo south and zambia are all area master franchise partners
1: mm. wow that's interesting <clears throat> yeah we, we we looked at that franchise model a little bit i remember i went to some. Meeting of uh, franchisors and their franchisees in Hawaii. And it was very illuminating. It was very, there was a lot of conflict between the two groups and uh, a, a lot of discussion about, well, how did you come up with these pricing models? You know, where it seemed like the franchisor was clearly in the driver's seat and setting a, uh, a pricing on the different services and products that it was providing to the franchisees do you still have that kind of dynamic in your organization
0: well i think i think so um, i think we <laughs> i would like to say it's all really happy and, and peaceful but of course there's like it's a negotiation um all the time and i think it's what makes the network really, really strong because ultimately you know, as far as what we produce, um, or, or try to put out across the franchise network, it has to go through the crucible of being accepted by hundreds of local business owners. And so if that, you know, whatever we've created a new product, or we're trying to do a pricing change or a new point of sale system, those things have to be intuitive, and they have to be um you know there has to be a practical relevant value for franchise owners if we're going to successfully implement it across the network so it keeps us from from you know doing busy work or sort of bs bureaucracy or anything that's that's not really going to add value directly to end customers um in the end and and then you know on the on the the franchisee side we've you know how we've structured is we have a what we call a brand development council or and it's a, it's basically elect, elected representatives of the franchise network that also bring issues and say, look, this is what we need to solve the network, and they're they're identifying those patterns across, like say it's you know territory violations between franchisees, um, you know they they will bring that 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 up and you know and say, what are you going to do to help us enforce this because it's distracting everybody and and you know and so on, so it is. Um, I think it's, you know, it's when I when I talked about eye to eye partnership earlier, it's not all, you know, um, roses. It's it's there is like that tussle and negotiation uh, um, that needs to happen. But ultimately I think you know, if we're if both sides are being heard, it actually creates a much stronger brand, a much stronger experience for customers um, and keeps us, you know, keeps us creating the most value possible for for the communities we're trying to serve.
1: Yeah, as, as you're talking, Gail, and I'm, uh, my mind is kind of moving ahead and, and wondering, hmm, maybe this franchise model has a got a lot more legs for our development work than I had maybe original, uh, originally thought. Would you see, see this model applying to a lot more than water at some point, or maybe it's already
0: happening? 100%, 100%. And I'm so passionate about that, too. I'm always trying to convert more, more folks to franchising because, like I said, it, it is the ideal way to have that balance of power where you're engaging local owners. Um, and you have this this give and take, um, or intellectual trade, or whatever you want to call it, um, where you can take the best of, of different ideas and refine it and create a partnership model that that drives it forward, um, and, and actually, there's we're part of a group called the International Franchise Association, or IFA. Maybe it's like associated to these guys who met in Hawaii or whatever, but it's mostly, you know, it's mostly the, the biggest franchises in the world, like that are flipping burgers or doing gyms or hotels or rental car companies. Um, but they, you know, when when they hear about the model, um, the business model of being used for social impact, then everyone lights up. In that in that community, because the, I think they, being professionals in the industry, recognize the power of the business model to be used for other social things. So I know there's people trying to do it with with healthcare. There's folks trying to do it with affordable housing. Um, there's folks doing it with uh, daycare centers. Um, even actually now, I, um, there's a friend doing it with earthen floors um, and affordable flooring um, in rural communities. So so it's I, I think it, the model has so much potential. If it's adapted in the right way to to emerging market communities, I think it's 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 really I think so underutilized and and part of it's because the word franchise is such a common word, so I think it's easy for all of us to to you know to, to think well I, I know what franchising is that's McDonald's or whatever and um, but the reality is you know underneath the surface it's, it is a sort of there are complexities in the models and certain pitfalls. Um, that are sort of known to you know the industry in franchising, but if you just sort of d- dip a toe in it, then it will be enough to turn, you know, turn, you know, turn you off and say, oh, okay, this 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 model doesn't work. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think their potential is massive for for the social impact that could be had um, and the local ownership that can be created through franchising.
1: That's really exciting and you know as you're speaking I'm kind of grinning to myself because I'm remembering when I was at that meeting of franchisors and franchisees in Hawaii and I think it was organized by some umbrella organization that one of my people had met, and then I ended up getting invited to it, and I remember when I was telling them, it came my turn to talk, and I started talking about Finca and everything, and I'm watching everybody's faces, and this one guy steps up, and he taps me on the chest, and he says, this, this meeting is about money, Rupert, <laughs> you know, just kind of like, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that, <laughs> that stuff some other time, but I'm delighted to hear that it's evolved. And I think there is enormous potential there. I can't imagine there wouldn't be. And it's really exciting. And that brings me to kind of my next question for you, Galen. Uh, you know, I reached the point when microfinance was enjoying enough exposure and early success I guess I would say uh where people you know started asking me okay so how how did you do this how did you do that what did you do when this happened everything and I finally decided you know what I think I need to write a book about this so people. Still, I can just refer them to the book, and I can get back to work. Have people asked you to write a book about your experience?
0: <laughs> Not yet, um, but I think I can't put myself in the same shoes as as you, referred, with all with all you've accomplished and done. It's quite a, a different scale. Um, but I I um I do try to you know here and there whenever I take um whenever i have time off i try to write down some of the story and what's been happening all that um if nothing to just be able to go back to um and see later you know what what we've gone through and how we were progressing because um you know it can be easy when you're down in the weeds, um, to not even see the progress that's happening every day. Uh, but if you're able to look back and say, "Wow, that was our biggest challenge at that time," um, you know we're we're, we're going we're we're getting somewhere now. Um, so, so yeah. But I but I uh, I I uh, I need to read your book actually. I didn't I, I wasn't um, I need to I'm gonna look it up and order it on Amazon if it's uh, is it. Oh sure but, uh, yeah.
1: No, I was I was just down in uh, the New Orleans Book Festival last month, uh, because I ironically I had met some unbelievable entrepreneurs from New Orleans who uh, rebuilt the city after Katrina, and uh, and I they just happened to be renting our cottage up in Maine to finish their book. It was a husband and wife. And uh, they had an amazing story. I was, and they left their manuscript, and I picked it up, and I was reading it, and I thought, this is unbelievable. These people, what a story! And, um, but I saw some stuff that I thought needed editing, so I offered to give them some tips and everything, and they, they took me all up on it, and I think they were, they were grateful enough that they let me stay in their in their place down in the French Quarter, just a block or so from Bourbon Street. So I had a wonderful uh, pay, payoff from that whole experience. But I would highly recommend it to you that you, uh, you know, start, as you say, start making notes. I remember mine started with me making notes for traps chapter headings like one was uh when beans bite back you know hiring a good cfo which for me for some reason was one of the hardest challenges i faced i kept getting it wrong Um, but um i think you'd be doing a, a great service it sounds to me like you need to start putting some of this some of these ideas and experiences down in writing and it's uh i'd be happy to help you out i've even got a few agents that i had i've gone through that they dumped me when my sales (laughs) weren't robust enough but uh, they might be willing to listen to your story if you're interested but uh, just let me know yeah and and above all, buy the Social Entrepreneurs Handbook. That's like I'm surprised you haven't yet.
0: You know, but well, anyway. that would be incredible, Rupert. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, that that, that could, I don't. I I can't start working on it right now. Um, but I, <laughs> okay. but I, but I but, definitely. I mean, it's definitely interesting. I think it's worth. It's it's, it's it'd be interesting to do for sure.
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you what you you have more time than you think. I remember when I when I started, you know, I had for the first time in my life I actually had a book contract from a real publisher, you know, McGraw Hill, and I had a deadline (laughs) that I had to meet. And I discovered, hmm, I guess I'm making the time. You know, I just I was living in London at the time because my daughter was in school there, and Every morning, I would make a big uh, thing of French press, high octane, a high octane coffee. And I would write for three hours every single morning, uh, weekends, holidays, everything. And afterwards, I'd take a big walk and... in. Uh, in Hyde Park, you know, in London, in the heart of London, (laughs) to walk off all the excess energy, but I really got through it, and uh, I I love writing because it kind of is, allows me to put some order into the world, especially now, which is really important, you know, (laughs) but uh, you can, you can make the time, you can do it, even if you have a really demanding job you know and other priorities and stuff so <clears throat> i would i would leave you with that thought anyway but let's get let's get back to our uh to your story here uh so tell me a bit it, it i can see some huge positives to having your father as a co-founder and a angel investor i guess we should call it if he was the first investor you had but how, how have you guys managed that division of labor and responsibility and everything? Has that been a, a smooth journey or another one that maybe there's a bump here and there you
0: have to work out? <laughs> well, definitely. Um, there's been, <laughs> been some bumps. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of four, I mean, one of five. I'm the fourth of five um kids in my family and i you know growing up i was pro- much closer to my siblings than even my parents and so when i you know when this opportunity came up and we kind of um were you know debating whether to start something together i i was pretty hesitant because i was like you know i can't really imagine working with my, <laughs> with, my with my dad <laughs> um, and uh, um, but then i thought you know what i'd be mean, I, If I'm looking at this quantitatively, he's a very, you know, he's an accomplished entrepreneur um, and all this. So anyway, I've learned more about him and who he is on a personal basis and a business basis, working together through this than I ever did, you know, uh, before. And so actually, I, um, you know, I think think we've strengthened our relationship significantly through this, um, just because we... Build a real relationship, you know, sort of um, through these challenges, and, I, and in some ways, I've said before, like, um, you know, with, with some of the challenges we faced, I think if it was just a friend um, as a co-founder, where we didn't sort of have to live with it forever, or whatever happened, um, uh, I I think I think it, it probably we probably wouldn't have stuck with it. Um, we we we, you know, there was just like so some of the challenges just so intense and um existential and all this and i think we you know having that family relationship uh you know made it so you know despite the arguments or fights we had and things we knew well in the end we're still father sons we're gonna have to figure out a way to sort this (laughs) regardless (laughs) of what we decide from a business um sense we need to figure it out from a from a emotional friction sense anyway, um, and I think that's not there when it's just a friend as a co founder. You kind of have to have the option of well, you know what, let's just cancel this whole thing and walk away and all that. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's there. But the, the 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 as far as how we divide roles and responsibilities, um, you know, it, I I moved to to Africa. Um, initially uh, Uganda and Rwanda uh, and he always lived in the States. And so I think that me being the guy on the ground, um, running the day-to-day stuff, I think that made it sort of more organic or easier to split responsibilities and also easier to tolerate each other since we we're <laughs> very far away um, you know, at any given time. So, so yeah, I, I, I guess it's not a clear answer. I think the, the the key for us has been getting out of the way um, for each other's strengths, you know, not really focusing on where someone else made a mistake or what the weakness is, but recognizing where someone is really good at something and letting them do that piece. Um, I think that's been pretty critical for us is is letting us do what we, you know, letting each other do what we are best at and what we enjoy uh, the most.
1: That sounds like your first good piece of advice for your book. So make sure you write that down. <laughs> that sounds really uh, right on point. I mean, you know that I think the key to a lot of stuff in the working world is how much do you love what you're doing, and if you can sort that out. I mean, I was I was fortunate in Finca that my My co-founder was the visionary, you know, came up with the methodology and a lot of the values that drove our mission, you know, And, and I was kind of the practical guy like I remember when it was really starting to catch on we went to one meeting of one of our clients cuz we we started out as a consulting firm actually something called rural development services and it morphed into a foundation I think but john we were meeting with this group i think it was care or maybe it was save the children or somebody and and whoever we trained in our methodology it just worked brilliantly they just loved it and so inevitably we would be in there for our maybe second or third you know follow-up meeting with them and there'd be a pause in the conversation and, and one of them would say okay john rrk rupert i think we can take it from here we don't need you guys anymore and uh and after one of those, John said, oh, this is great, you know. And afterwards, I said, John, this is not great. This is how we make our living. They just fired us, you know. They just said they don't need us anymore. But um, but that... Um, <clears throat> I can't even remember what kind of point. Oh, no, it was the division of labor. So I was the practical guy. I was always, even though I thought I hated bean counting and I pretty much still do. And I'm not very good at, but I had to do it because some John was not going to do it. No way, you know? So we kind of reached that division of labor. Um, but um It sounds like you've got some uh, good experience and and learning there. Um, Well, let's talk a bit about, this is one of my favorite parts of these interviews. Okay, so here we are. It's uh, 2022. And uh, we're maybe, maybe we're all wondering Should we even bother talking about 2030 or 2050? (laughs) The way things are going. You know, we've got the pandemic, we've got uh, almost a third world war in progress, we've got terrible schisms between uh, people in our country and even. Discussing whether democracy can even survive in our country anymore. Can we talk about the future? But so when you look ahead, Galen, let's let's confine it to your company. You know, to Jibu, uh, and forget a moment for a moment that Fink is a shareholder in your company. I guess. but what are you seeing there? What, what are your priorities? What are your challenges? I mean, it sounds like a pretty good ride, good trajectory right now. You're going through some really good times. But are there some things that you see as challenges that you kind of have to solve still?
0: Yes, we, I think today we don't have challenges, then that's, then I'm I'm out of here, because that that would be pretty boring. But I, I mean, first of all, as far as the meta context, I am super optimistic about the future of emerging markets, um, particularly Africa and South America and parts of Southeast Asia. I, I, I think the future is really in those places. And I think you, you know, Rupert, with all of your visits and everything, I'm sure you and your Peace Corps experience, I'm sure you can attest to that, just the vibrance and uh, the growth happening and the joy, energy, all that stuff. I think um, the future is, is very bright and, and it's, it's heading in the right direction um, in the places where, where Jibu works overall. Um, and, and then specifically for, for Jibu, um, like I mentioned earlier in, in the podcast, our North Star metric is the number of thriving franchises that we've launched. Um, and so our goal is to uh, both increase the success, the level of success of every franchise we launch and, the, and expand the number of franchises. So in some way, our, our vision is, is doing more of the same as what we've done now, but uh, you know, uh, bending and adapting and stretching the model so that it can launch a new context. Because right now we're primarily in East Africa, So our goal in the next two years is entering West Africa, Southern Africa and North Africa through master franchise models and through direct franchising. And then also leveraging the Jibu platform um, because we have all these high visibility retail spaces. So it's about 8,500 retail points across the seven countries of operation um, to bring in other um, essential services that have an impact on health in the community. So our goal is not to become sort of an Amazon of Africa or something, distribute everything under the sun, um, but how can we decentralize the production of the most essential um, human needs? So uh, energy uh, as an example. And and so we're looking at um, clean energy options that we can bring into the franchise network um, and actually decentralize the production of similar to what we're doing with, with water there's so many technologies that exist now that enable small scale manufacturing and operations that we could use to basically, uh, you know, create self-dependent communities um, through, through the Jibu model. So, so the expansion um, and the new products and then, you know, obviously the continued growth of drinking water, Dr- drinking water, with, you know, with all of that drinking water will still always be your anchor product and sort of the bread and butter for our franchise owners. Um, but but that, that's, that's what we're looking. So all this to say, with with growth, um, one of the things that could be possible for for Jibu um, would to become a publicly traded company. And one of our lead investors in the round were in the process of closing. Um, th- their focus or expertise is investing in, in social enterprises that they believe have potential um, to, to go public. And going public would mean that we could then have the resources to go cross-continental and really bring the franchise model uh globally. So that's that's where we're trying to go. And um and what I'm really excited about because I think in the next, in the next two or three years, we'll see that critical juncture opportunity really um you know coming true for Jibu, hopefully.
1: Wow, that's wonderful. Well, I'm uh <clears throat> I'm really thrilled for you. It just sounds like you're in some really into some really interesting stuff. And, um, you know, any, any way we can help, but think that please let us know. We've also had good and bad experiences with uh, investors. And uh, that's a, that's a whole nother story. But, you know, if, if you have the right ones, then, uh, you know that are really in, and by that I mean they're really into the mission, and they're not just return seeking. It's okay. In fact, you need to give them a good return, but it can't be what it's all about, because there there's gonna be some moments when you have real challenges on the return front, and that's when you really need them to understand why you do what you do and what the priorities are but um you know i'm sure you'll uh you'll have that experience sooner or later and uh, i'm sure you'll handle it winningly well listen i don't want to run through all our time here without making sure you've shared with us everything you would like our audience to hear so, is there anything we haven't covered yet, Galen, that uh, you, you'd really like to put out there?
0: I think we covered the, some of the pieces I'm most passionate about, but of course, I can always talk all day about. <laughs> 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 so it's a dangerous question or a dangerous yeah. offer you're giving me. Um, but no, I, I've really enjoyed. I've really enjoyed talking, Rupert, and uh just have you have you have such a wealth of experiences there's so much depth there so i i wish i i could just hear more about your stories. so i'm definitely motivated to to go and, and grab your book now after this
1: okay well i won't detain you any longer then but listen uh that's it for today folks uh it's been a pleasure chatting with galen the co-founder of jibu as always, I'd like to hear from you, our listeners. You can find me on Twitter, at Rupert Schofield. And you can listen to more of my podcasts. There's, I think there's about 48 of them now. And I've been having, having a little fun here in my spare time going back to some of those first ones. And it's it's wonderful. And I actually want to follow up with some of uh, the people I talked with back then and see how they and their companies are doing today. I have to some extent, but I haven't done it systematically. But um, you can see my podcast online at www.socentpodcast.org. You can also follow my organization, Finca International, on Twitter at Finca. that's capital F-I-N-C-A, or at www.finca.org. If you're an entrepreneur looking to attract investment to an early stage social enterprise, I encourage you to also visit www.fincaventures.com. Galen, what's the best way for people to follow you and Jibu online?
0: They can go to jibu.co or jibu.co.com. And they can follow us uh, at jibu.co on Twitter. So it's J-I-B-U-C-O.
1: Okay, terrific. Listen, say hi to your dad for me. I'm sure he'll remember me in our conversation. But uh, otherwise, I will see you, mate, in Uganda on my next trip through, as we say. Uh, a real pleasure talking to you. Really enjoyed this, Galen. Thank Such you. Such a
0: pleasure. Such a pleasure, Rupert. Thanks a lot.